Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be continuing looking at the rise and power of the papacy in the age of Innocent III. One of the uh, this is the high point of papal power. We're also going to see the uh, transformations taking place in Europe in the leading and development of the rise of heresies, as well as the reviving the uh, beginnings of uh, mendicant orders or revivalist preachers also beginning to appear. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. So we're going to look at Pope Innocent III uh, as one of the more pivotal figure, figures in the uh, uh, in the papacy. Um, it's considered the most powerful pope in history, born uh, Lothario Conti uh, from an old aristocratic Roman family. He was a well-educated legal scholar, uh, being trained at universities in Rome, Bologna. Remember, we talked about in our last lecture, Bologna, the University of Bologna was the center of legal scholarship and thought, and as well as taught at the University of Paris, which was the center of theological thought in the universities at the time. Um, he was appointed cardinal and then succeeded to the office of Pope in 1198. Uh, as Pope, um, he began to use the title Vicar of Christ. Now, previous popes used the, the title Vicar of Peter. Um, Vicar of Christ was not a relatively new term. Um, most kings used it as a form of sacred kingship, um, designating the right and authority of both their subjects for their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And so uh, Pope Innocent III began to use this title primarily to demonstrate that he had he was in himself an absolute monarch, the absolute monarch over all of Europe that deals with both the physical needs of, of Christendom as well as the spiritual needs. Um, he sought and expanded papal control in Rome and Italy um, and began to use the papacy as a means of controlling the beliefs and conduct of people across Christian Europe. Um, and as Pope, one of the things he did was he began to roll back the powers of the Western monarchies, uh, primarily uh, getting into uh, uh, the weakening of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire, remember, was a collection of different Germanic states uh, from Denmark all the way down to Northern Italy. Uh, he began to roll back uh, the Holy Roman Empire, re removing some of their claims over Northern Italy and uh, he began involved in the election of the Holy Roman Empire. So uh, there was a uh, debate about which who would succeed to the position of emperor. It was Pope Innocent III with France backing the can uh, backing their candidate against uh, the most of the German electors and England with their candidate. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Pope Innocent was able to get his candidate Frederick II installed as emperor in 1214. Um, but he also, at the same time, too, was able to have the electors, the the different the different Germanic uh, uh, states, uh, gain more power and authority, therefore weakening and disuniting uh, the Holy Roman Empire even further. Uh, he also uh, checked the powers of England and France. Um, he was he got into a, a heated uh, debate and argument with the King of England over. The appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury, ultimately posing each other's candidates. Um, finally, he ordered an interdict against England. An interdict is where the church ceases to perform all of its functions. So, you know, mass, prayer for the dead, all, all those functions would cease. Baptisms would cease in England. Um, and so uh, in 1208, uh, England was put under an interdict. And then for four years, England refused to um, refused to uh, cave in on these demands. The King of England, John, refused to give in. 
and ultimately uh, he was excommunicated in 1212. And this finally forced King John's hands. And so King John surrendered to Pope Innocent III um, and gave over the entire kingdom of England as a fiefdom to Innocent III, as well as having to pay an annual tax to Pope Innocent. So it was a huge uh, win for Pope Innocent and the papacy. Uh, he also put France under an interdict, and this one was involved because of King Philip's uh, marriages. He was married to uh, a princess from Denmark named Ingeborg, and he didn't like her, didn't want anything to do with her, tried to have her removed and uh, put into a monastery. And ultimately, um, he uh, uh, he was placed under an interdict uh, to force to take back his his wife. And so this was another massive win. So for the papacy and gaining control and expanding their power and authority. So what Pope Innocent III began to do was to uh, begin to centralize the church government. He began to reorganize it and expand its power and authority uh, and expand the bureaucracy of the papacy as well. So he centralized and placed it under the control of the papacy and the cardinals, as well as creating the uh, expanding the authority and power of the people papal legates. Remember, in the early medieval period, from around 500 800 AD, uh, the papacy had prestige but not a whole lot of power. Bishops could act in some way independent of the Bishop of Rome, not to a great extent, but really could manage their own affairs without really a lot of direct influence. Now the papacy is having a much greater direct influence. This came out of the Cluniac reforms and the Gregorian forms a century earlier. Uh, and so with these papal legates, now you had them invested with all their power to handle affairs, uh, pretty much enforcing the policy of the papacy in the, in their, in the dias, different dioceses across, uh, uh, across Europe. He also uh, imposed the first general income tax on all clergy. So now the clergy not only collecting tithes had to send a tax to Rome as well. He also organized the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. Most historians consider this as the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. There is a debate between its either or. So you could say that the Fourth Lateran Council is when the Roman Catholic Church began. Some argue it's the Council of Trent. Um, you could say it was born in the Fourth Lateran Council, but matured at the Council of Trent uh, 300 years later. So it's some debate, but ultimately the, the Fourth Lateran Council is significant because it's the papacy trying to reorder um, and cement strict control on the beliefs of Christians. So ultimately organizing and systematizing Christian thought, and then also going out and mandating it and making a part of the, the Christian world at this point. Some of the things that came out, for example, is that Christians, you know, must uh, perform at least one confession a year as well, partaking uh, in communion at least once a year. Uh, and so what we see is a transition from the penitential piety of the Carlaginian and post-Carlaginian age around 800 AD, where penance uh, was, a, was a part, not to say the penance ceases, but what happens is, is that there's a, it's much more focused on the sacramental system that we see with the rise of the, uh, we see elements of it in the church, but it's systematized under Peter Lombard's four book of sentences, where you have those seven sacraments, and they're kind of codified into the Fourth Lateran Council. And so with that sacramental piety, now a key component uh, of the church, of the papacy, now you have the papal legates going out 
to make sure that this is being enforced across the church. And then when we see with the mendicant orders, those revivalist preachers, they will play a role as well as having to spread that sacramental piety to bring in the church and the laity to this process and making a part, a rhythm of their daily life. Um, also, we see uh, right now with the transformation in Europe. So now that Europe, in a sense, has become has had increased stability after the Carlaginian age, there was instability internal and then external, you know, invasions by the Vikings, disintegration of the Carlaginian Empire. Um, now that there's some level of increased stability, it doesn't mean there wasn't conflict between different monarchies or wars or, or feudal conflicts and such, but there is a level of stability and economic growth that is happening across uh, Europe. With that, um, there also began to be increase in anti-Semitic attitudes. And we'll see also not only an increase in anti-Semitic attitudes, but also a rise in heresy begins to begin to be taking place as well. We'll talk we'll address those issues later on. But the uh, Fourth Lateran Council uh, deals in a sense with uh, the Jewish people um, forcing them to wear distinct clothing. They had to live in separate communities, uh, in organized communities. They were restricted from certain employments and forced into employments of other areas. Uh, so, and there's a sense of growing hostility towards the Jews. Uh, we see that, for example, in England in 1209, all Jews were were uh, expelled from the country. Uh, and then 100 years later, France expelled them again uh, in 1306. And then in 1391, um, Spain expels them as well. And then, um, uh, and so they're in Germany too, there are, there are evidences of mass persecutions taking place, for example, like in Strasbourg around the, the middle of the 14th century. Uh, they marched the Jews, 2,000 Jews, out into the cemetery, and those who refuse to convert are burnt at the stake. So there is uh, mass ex expulsions, massacres in various countries and dealings and with the relationships to Jew. And really the reason why is because, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, paranoid fantasy in that the Jews were kidnapping Christian children and drinking their blood in the sense of a mock communion uh and, you know, mocking the Christian communion. There's also a sense of uh, hatred towards the Jews because of their role as moneylenders um, and Christians owing debt to these Jews. So there was a sense of of a bad relationship. And as um, the, the, the rise of towns, the rise of cities begin to appear and economic expansion, economic growth begins to happen, the Jews began to, those who were involved in money lending and those who were successful began to gain some, some aspects of wealth. And therefore uh, it began to be, it be, it acquire them a level of notoriety in the local Christian community as, well, why are they getting wealth? I'm a Christian. They're not. Why, why are they attaining this greater wealth and having this greater prosperity? And here I am a poor towns, Christian townsman, and I'm in debt. So there was conflict there as well. And the treatment of the Jews uh, was poorly they were poorly treated um, in this medieval period and will continue onward throughout the centuries. Um, so like I mentioned, there is uh, an economic transformation that happens prior to the the black plague, uh, the, the bubonic plague, the black death that happens uh, in the end of the 14th century. Um, this economic growth uh, happened as uh, feudal manners began to, like I said, as, as the instability began to roll back and people began to clear land, 
towns and villages began to spring up. Uh, trade routes began to open, in part thanks to the Crusades and the contact east, the expansion of those the merchant class. So we have here a growth and a wealth wealth growth taking place. But with that, with these growth of town and cities and trade, the old social system, the feudal structure is still there, uh, it begins to break down and weaken, especially in those towns and cities. Um, so you don't have, in a sense, of a peasant farmer trusting that the Lord, the local manor, will protect them and provide for them and care for them and defend them. Um, now they're kind of left to their own devices in these in these communities. So there's a communal change that's taking place as well. And you have different classes gaining greater prominence. So instead of being a knight or nobleman and having massive wealth, you could be a merchant uh, and gain even greater wealth and greater power and influence. And so it began to kind of upend the social balance that was in place in that early and high middle point. And so now in the the now as we enter into the late Middle Ages, um, it begins to change as well. So there's a loss of security found in the community. And this in turn uh, will lead to the rise of dissenting groups. Um, because now with the rise of universities too, that's happening with this economic growth. So not only is there just an economic growth, there's an intellectual growth that's happening simultaneously with these transformations across Europe. People are gaining access to uh, greater access to uh, and rise of literacy and reading and, and book material. Um, and so now there's a sense of uh, dissent that's happening to what they see around them. And so in opposition to what they find in scripture or find in interactions with different communities. And so people began to uh, begin to stand up and speak out. Uh, we see the church transform in response to this as instead of being a persecuted church into a, in a sense, a persecuting church. Um, and now that the church is the cemented figure across Europe, it begins to address how it begins to develop and formulate plans to address these either dissenting groups or heretical groups that appear as well. So one of the dissenting groups was known as the Waldenesians. They were founded by Peter Waldo, who was a wealthy merchant uh, from 1173 to 1205. Um, he heard the preaching of Christ and giving up your wealth, speaking to the young rich ruler. And so taking it as a personal call for himself, sells all he has to devote himself to living a life of poverty and preaching. Um, at this time, it becomes very popular. It's known as the Vita uh, Apostolica, the, the way of the apostles. And so they begin people began to be drawn to imitating the the uh, the way the apostles acted in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, especially selling all they had and living a life of preaching and, and sharing the gospel and, and teaching scripture. Um, initially, uh, what's also amazing, too, is Peter Waldo gains a, uh, a Bible in the vernacular. He, gains, he asks a priest to translate the Latin Vulgate into the vernacular French for him. And so that way he can preach from it. So uh, Peter Waldo gains a great uh, following from his teachings. Uh, initially, his group was permitted um, by the Third Lateran Council in 1179, but they weren't allowed to preach. There was a ban on them for preaching, but Peter Waldo said, no, we're going to keep on preaching. And he was excommunicated in uh, 1184. So some quick questions. Why did these revivalist preachers appear? Why did these dissenting groups begin to appear? And there's different factors that play a role in this. One is the growth in that that sacrament, the penitential piety and the sacramental piety that we'll see later on with the Fourth Lateran Council. 
there is, as the church continues to expand, remember the rise of Paris churches with Carla, Carla, uh, Charlemagne um, and that expansion of the missionary movement into Central and Eastern Europe. Um, there is a growth of people being able to attend and having a, a devotion to the church and hearing, at least in hearing and interacting with some aspects of scripture. There is also, like I said, the rise with the rise of crusades. Um, there's also the rise of pilgrimages and relic tours. Uh, so it, it has that fervent and emotional need that's tied in with it as well. Um, we see the rise of literacy uh, with the right, with the appearance of universities, not just clergymen can read, but now those who have money and means can send their children, uh, aristocrats or not, merchant classes as well, uh, to universities to receive some formalized education to come back. So now you have, in a sense, young readers who can participate in reading the Latin Vulgate, reading texts, um, and therefore having access to scripture. So all of these, in a sense, uh, play a role. Now, the papacy does oppose some of of these descending groups, but not others. And the reason why it's really the groups that are anti-clerical. Um, you know, uh, during the Gregorian reforms under Pope Gregory, remember we talked about Hildebrand or Pope Gregory, um, there was dealing with corruption, uh, simony, uh, marriage, corrupt um, uh, corrupt leaders within the church, corrupt clergymen. Mm -hmm. But now that the church has kind of, in a sense, handled those issues, it begins to shift focus instead of using the laity and using secular authority to root out corruption. There's not going to be a focus on that instead of focusing on maintaining the order and stability in the church and maintaining the teaching of what was what was happening in the church. Um, and, and so, for example, in the Fourth Lateran Council, one of the things that came out of it was that the sacraments uh, convey aspects of grace so you take the sacraments to continuously receive some form of grace uh but that is not but receiving the grace from the sacraments is not based on the moral standing of the clergyman the clergyman can be the most corrupt clergyman on the planet but as long as the the sacraments themselves will receive that divine divinity and therefore offer that grace to the individual it's not the person themselves as we convey it over and so as with, with, you'll see with these different groups, the dissenting groups that had problems with corruption in the church, the church will oppose. But the but the other groups that uh, are preachers and like we'll see with the Franciscans and Dominicans who have do not have problem being under the authority of the church and a problem being under the authority of certain clergymen, the church will support, the papacy will support. So there is a divide in attitude of how the church deals with these different groups. Um, so, for example, the Waldenesians, they believe the Bible's supreme authority against the authority of the papacy. Um, the Waldenesians oppose transubstantiation. Uh, they oppose purgatory. They oppose the prayer for the dead and indulgences. They do believe in uh, the uh, veneration of Mary. Um, but the Waldenesians are important. They do appear and rise um, in northern Italy and southern France. Uh, they do make their home really in northern Italy. We'll see that they will they'll come under severe persecution, but they will continue to survive and thrive and, and exist in a sense to this day. So they are considered in some ways uh, because of their focus on uh, scriptures, supreme authority over the church, um, as well as rejection of certain of some of the many sacraments. Um, they do kind of gravitate into the Protestant body. Um, and so they are considered the oldest Protestant body to this day. 
you have then another dissenting group in this in this sense the Cathars the uh, or the Cathars depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, they were a Gnostic group with ties to the Bogomil. So one of the previous Byzantine lectures I talked about, there were Gnostic groups in the East uh, or Manichaeans in the East. These dualists really um, in the East. So there are the Paulicians and the Bogomils. Um, and so certain there's a debate exactly on the origins of the 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 Cathars, whether or not they were even real or not. Um, one group of scholarship said, yes, there's ties to the Bogomils. Um, we see the evidence of Gnostic groups in Northern Europe, in Northern France around 1140. They migrated into Southern France, Northern Italy around the 1200s. They became uh, centered around certain towns, for example, the town of Albi in France. Um, so they're known as the Albigensians. Uh, these French Cathars are. Um, Cathars means the pure ones, Greek for the pure ones. Uh, so that's one aspect of scholarship. There's another aspect that says the information that we have from them comes primarily from the Inquisition. We really have no writings of the Cathars themselves, of what they actually believed. Um, but all the all the writings we do have about them come from uh, confessions made from uh, uh, persecutions by the Inquisitor Inquisitors against the Cathars. So most of their thoughts could have been constructed from either false confessions or confessions under duress by individuals, as well as, you know, paranoid fantasies of the inquisitor. So in one of the big arguments is that how, you know, at the height of the papal power and authority, that this alternative church that has its own bishops, church buildings, um, how could it gain so much ground and authority uh, right on the doorstep of the papacy itself? So there is some debate in the scholarship behind what these groups actually believe. Uh, but regardless, it's still important because of what they believe nonetheless in reaction to the church to, to, what, to the supposed uh, uh, heresy that was appearing. Um, the Cathar belief, uh, for example, just like any typical Gnostic, believes that the physical world is evil and is created by the devil. In a sense, everything matter time being space all that evil wicked made by satan satan is an gnostic belief is always elevated to some superior power um satan in the cathar tradition is equal with god as eternal and all-powerful in a sense um and that the soul is really an angelic spirit it's trapped in an evil body um and so the, the goal is to release the soul from the body uh, and the greatest sin that one can commit is is sex. That is the ultimate sin uh, in the, the Cathar beliefs. Um, they also believe that Christ did not, because body, physical matter is evil, Christ did not have a physical body and did not really die on the cross. Um, and salvation is not meant by Christ living and dying and, and, and having that atonement. Um, salvation is only done through the sense of enlightenment. Once again, it's another aspect of Gnostic belief that you have to, it's all about mind, your mindset, the, the positive power of positivity in a sense. It is that by attaining that level of enlightenment, you too can achieve and move beyond into the next and freeing your angelic soul and being. Um, another aspect too, is that the Cathars oppose the papacy and views the papacy as the antichrist, uh, as most of these dissenting groups will do <laughs> in some ways do. Um, they did reject baptism. They rejected Holy Communion. Their group, they had a Gnostic kind of like group structure uh, where you have kind of the initiates. Those were the believers. And then you were elevated into the perfect 
Um, the only way you could be elevated to the perfect is you had to renounce all marriage and property. Um, you had to abstain from sex and meat as they were symbols of the body. Um, and so you had to live, you had to also go through this initiation process with uh, swearing an oath and having the, the gospel of John on top of your head and promising to follow the orders and such. Um, but the Cathars will come, uh, will suffer uh, a horrendous uh, persecution in the sense of the Albigensian Crusades. Like I talked about in my crusade lecture, there are many different types of crusades. There was crusades against uh, Islam. There's crusades against pagans in Eastern Europe. There was there were Reconquista in Spain, which is technically a type of crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually a crusade against, uh, in a sense, non-Christians within within Europe. So this is a, a directly internal crusade. What's happening in Europe? Uh, originally, Pope Innocent and the papacy tried to deal with the Cathars by sending individuals to preach among them. Uh, to try to convert them back into the fold of the church wasn't working. And so ultimately they declared a crusade against the Cathars in 1209. Um, this, this was immensely supported by the French king and the nobility of Northern France. Southern France was viewed almost in a sense as a separate realm. We kind of like want to think of France as one in a sense, like today, a big United country, but don't forget it's divided up into different feudal lands and territories and southern France uh, had a different mindset in, in ways versus the northern France. And so this was an opportunity to gain land, wealth, glory, etc., cetera, um, as well as indulgences, uh, the spiritual ramifications of participating in the crusade. The French king always looking to expand uh, his political power um, and authority over French nobles, participated willingly in the crusades. What's interesting is that some people came to the defense of the Cathars. For example, uh, the king of Aragon, I believe, um, in Spain, helped protect and tried to prevent uh, the mass destructions that were taking place in southern France. So not everybody lined up really to help destroy the Cathars. But um, the campaign lasted for a long time, 20 years uh, in one one account, a city of 20,000 people were completely wiped out and massacred. Um, it was a brutal affair in southern France. It was absolutely destructive. Um, another dissenting group, uh, the Petrobrugians, were founded by Peter de Bruce in 1105. Um, again, uh, a, a, a popular priest uh, turned revival preacher uh, was burned at the stake in 1126. Um, it made, uh, once again, opposition to many of the, the elements of the sacramental piety and what was being promoted from the, uh, was promoting uh, ideas in a sense that were promoted within the church before it was codified the Lateran Council. For example, denied infant baptism, uh, opposed that the church buildings were holy in of themselves, uh, and the use of altars within the church, uh, rejected the use of sign of the cross, the transubstantiation, the idea of transubstantiation opposed the mass. And so his group, especially, was targeted for persecutions by the Inquisition later on and by the papal legates and, and church communities. And they were dispersed into other dissenting groups like the Waldenesians, the Cathars, and the Begins and the Beghards that we'll look at later. So their, their group was dispersed outward as well. Uh, uh, jo- Joachim Afior uh, was a Cistercian monk. Um, and founded a and founded a monastery in Fior in, in uh, eleven ninety two. Now he's an important individual because, in a way, it's so these revival groups began to appear. One, in a sense of seeing the 
the, seeing in a sense the economic instability that was taking place around them, but also there's in a sense an eschatological uh, background to it as well. And Joachim uh, Fior in a sense amplifies it in one of his most important works, the, the mystical writings of the everlasting gospel, in that it divides the history of the world into three ages. Um, the Old Testament is the age of God the Father. The New Testament is uh, the age of God the Son. And then the new age that will come in 1260 is the age of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the true church appears, uh, which will be led by the true monastic order in a sense. And so um, it'll be an age of great revival and transformation. It'll bring in the new age of the kingdom. And so this was influential on different dissenting groups because people were, in a sense, were looking for, uh, in, 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 in those who ran ran with and understood the everlasting gospel uh, were inclined to believe that which of these revivalist groups that began to appear, whether Petrobusians or, um, or the, um, the Waldenesians, the Cathars or the Franciscans or, and so on and so forth, whether these different groups that appear was the supposed beginning of that new age. So there was an eschatological uh, undercurrent that was happening within these dissenting movements as well. Um, another aspect of expanding papal power. So besides addressing and opposing these dissenting groups, the what the means in which that uh, Pope Innocent III uh, began to uh, deal with these heretical movements was the formation of an inquisition. Um, inquisition deal with the old kind of land law versus accusiato, where you have the accuser, uh, you know, kind of like in a court case, you're you're tried before the accused, your, your accusers there to accuse you of the crime you committed. Inquisition is done actually in the sense of the church. Um, so it centralizes the investigation under the church. That it doesn't, it's not conducted by um by the it's not in a sense conducted or ran the inquisition is not ran by the local bishop, it's ran by the papacy who appoints individuals as in, in, inquisitors to deal with these heretical groups, and they answer to the Pope themselves. They're special legates. Eventually, the Dominicans will be the ones who really administer the Inquisition, um, and they kind of gain a lot of negative notoriety because of that. Um, uh, so if one is accused of being a, her a heretic, um, you don't, you're brought before a church official. You're not brought before your accuser. The church official has to prove that you're a heretic. You're already assumed guilty of being a heretic, and the church official must find evidence and proof of your heresy and it's impossible to prove one's innocence and so they had the church gave them every available means to prove that you were a heretic through torture solitary confinement uh lengthy imprisonment one man was imprisoned for at least 19 years for heresy um and, and to force a confession from you what's interesting is that initial confessions were admissible but then they began to add that you had to not to be a confession to be admissible you had to not only confess of your heresy but those within your circle of who were heretics so in a sense it created this global network and that's what i was talking about with the cathars there's some elements of it possibly not being uh a, a real um a real wide, in a sense, not worldwide, but a, a real massive heretical movement. It may have been some dualists and some Gnostic believers within different towns and cities and may have had some elements of a small, small organization, but maybe not as large as it was once thought. Um, but like I said, that's scholars and historians debate that. Um, but the inquisitors themselves 
were looking, using their manuals and using their writings to really investigate. Uh, and they kept meticulous records uh, because they wanted to catch people in perjury uh, of making uh, making those claims. And so they ha- we have long records of books upon books of Inquisitor files of what actions were done, how what people's responses were, how they were tortured. Um, and this Inquisition forced many, uh, many dissenting groups to go underground. Uh, supposedly from, um, I believe, from 1231 to 1331, anywhere from 8,000 to 40,000 people went through the Inquisition. So um, there's still some debate. It's, just, it's not the Spanish Inquisition that most people remember um, later on. There are different in- periods of Inquisitions. Um, and this in- Inquisition was mostly localized in around southern France and northern Italy. Uh, but later on, this will be used. And this is really the first time that the church had this kind of power to arrest with with uh, arrest uh, and imprison, torture individuals based on claims of heresy, as well as then lead them up to having been executed by the state. So really, this is, like I said, the transformation of a persecuted church into a persecuting church um, uh, in this time period of absolute power of the papacy. Uh, Pope Innocent III, um, like I mentioned in my crusade lectures, was involved within the Fourth Crusade. The Fourth Crusade was dealing to try to once again uh, conquer Egypt and reclaim Jerusalem. Uh, and this crusade went sideways pretty pretty quickly in the Fourth Crusade and ended up taking Constantinople. Um, and so uh, Pope Innocent III tried to end the schism uh, between the Western Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, but with the after the success of the Fourth Crusade, kind of having to deal with the, the cards that were dealt with for him, uh, he appointed a Western Catholic Patriarch of Constantinople. He began to try to enforce the Western Catholic traditions on the Eastern Orthodox people to no success whatsoever. It was a short term affair, really lasting only for a couple decades until finally uh, Western control would come to an end uh, in 1270 and 1261 when the Byzantines were able to reconquer Constantinople. But like I said, in the Crusades lecture, this is really the death knell uh, for um, uh, for the uh, the Byzantine Empire in, in, in a sense because they'll never really recover from this. The, the rise of the Ottoman Turks will also play a role in bringing the fall of the Byzantine Empire, which we'll look at in our next lecture. So um, we looked at the dissenting groups that were opposed by the papacy. Now we're going to look at a revivalist preachers and revivalist movements that began to appear that was supported by the papacy. Uh, one is the Franciscans, uh, founded by Francis of Assisi in 1209. He was son of a local uh, a noble. He Francis gained uh, one with, uh, was involved in some military affairs and, and such, and then he heard uh, the you know, in hearing the gospel, felt called to uh, to preach and live a life of simplicity, uh, live a life of faith, um, and gained a real uh, a real following from his lifestyle. Very living a very simple lifestyle, living by begging, pretty much. Like I said, following the uh, Vita Apostolica uh, in the sense of following the practice of apostles by living by almsgiving, living the living a, not in the sense of being forced into poverty. Uh, but willfully following the life that lifestyle, um, it, and he gained many followers for it. And so, had in 1209 founded the organization and wrote rules for his followers that emphasized that poverty and simplicity of faith versus the uh, the intellectual clergymen, those who began to appear out of universities. Um, 
He gained papal recognition from Pope Innocent III in 1210. And Pope Innocent III actually had a dream um, that uh, for the Franciscans and so agreed to uh, gain them recognition. They had to, once again, though, uh, respect uh, clerical authority, though they answered to the papacy in a sense. They were independent of their local bishops. Um, over time, though, they began to lose simplicity uh, and began to become a proper monastic order. They began to gain, uh, like any order organization, it didn't last long in a sense because you need places to stay, you need buildings and some sort of structure. And so these Franciscans were gifted uh, buildings to act as uh, monasteries um, and act as education center for, uh, for or operation centers for the Franciscans. And so from these spiritual friends. And so there was a transformation of this uh, of this order into a real what we would call a mendicant order uh, in a sense because they live by giving uh, and, and monastic order. Um, Francis would really just uh, uh, be disappointed in a sense discussed of what happened with the order that he's built. Um, and he would leave the order in 1220 and Cardinal Ugolino would be appointed to replace him and lead the Franciscans. One of the lasting legacies of Francis was that he promoted the idea of individual conscience, that you can, you don't have to follow a, a priest or a bishop by what they say. You have the, if they say something that's wrong, counter, counter to the church or scripture, you have the individual conscience to, you have that freedom of individual conscience to not have to follow them or, or listen to them. Um, he is the first one really noted for the stigmata uh, before he died, two years before he died, having bleeding from his hands and from his side and from his feet. Um, it becomes extremely popular as a sign of a saint. Um, and so we see it primarily in the Roman Catholic Church. We don't see a stigmata appear in any Protestant churches or Eastern Orthodox churches. And, you know, there's been hundreds and hundreds of people that claim to have the stigmata in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Francis would die in 1226. Um, and playing that pivotal role in founding the Franciscans. Now, the Franciscans will continue to uh, drift from those original rules. And in fact, we see the rise of many schoolmen come out of the Franciscans. You have Bonaventura, you have Alexander of Hales, you have um, uh, uh, John de Scotus. Uh, so you have many different, and William Ockham, you have many different uh, Franciscans that began to appear as, you know, the university intellectual movement they still in some ways try to live that the rules but the rules began to weaken over time uh nicholas of lyra is an important individual uh, especially for the reformation he was a theology teacher in paris in 1309 he supported the grammatic historical interpretation of scripture over the allegorical interpretation of scripture and we see that really on the rise too and thomas aquinas argued that in the same in the same manner of literal interpretation over allegorical and dealing with doctrines of the church uh, he promoted his first Bible commentary, um, and it was the first Bible commentary that was printed off the printing press. Nicholas Lyra tried to master Hebrew as well to gain a better understanding, and especially for his work on his commentary in the Old Testament as well. So uh, his work uh, would go through like 100 editions from 1471 to like 1600. Uh, it was really popular as a Bible commentary early on. Um, and the famous quote is that if Nicholas Lyra didn't play his lyre, then Martin Luther would never have danced. So there was an important individual that connected uh, the Protestant Reformation to these early Franciscans. Uh, the Franciscan group will go into a division, and I kind of mentioned this in the last lecture. Uh, there was a group of Franciscans who wanted to return back to the original rules of Francis of Assisi and oppose what they saw as the rise of wealth and property 
shaping the Franciscan order. These were the spiritual Franciscans versus the, what was called the conventional Franciscans. Um, they would, the spiritual Franciscans will actually have to go underground as a dissenting group because they would be uh, declared as heretical by, I believe, Pope John the 22nd. Um, and this division lasts until 1517 when Pope Leo X uh, allowed the two Franciscan orders to operate separately. Um, so they are operated as observants and conventuals. So there is two aspects of the Franciscan order. Then you had the Dominicans, founded by Dominic Guzman, a uh, young man ordained at the age of 25, uh, and he was sent by uh, by the papacy to help preach uh, in the gospel and scriptures against the Waldenesians and Albertinians and oppose their influence. Uh, he realized that um, that the most effective way to communicate to these individuals, instead of living the ostentatious life's life of the clergy bishops of the parish priests that had means and wealth was living a simple and pure lifestyle um, and living the lifestyle in a sense would help convey the message more so. And he focused on that. The, the focus instead on was on preaching, preaching and teaching. And so they would, but also living in a sense, another level of life of poverty, like the Franciscans and begging, begging for food and sustenance. And uh, this this whole process would gain followers and transform into a movement again. And he would gain he would have to write his own rules in 1214 for this order. And this becomes the Dominicans were also known as the order of preachers or the order of friar preachers. It also gains papal approval in 1217. So you have now two groups. You have the Franciscans operating and the Dominicans operating in a sense, playing an important role to uh, help uh, expand you know, ideas that were codified in the Lateran Council, but also reinforce that besides just having the papal legates, the clergies and the bishops, now you have revivalist preachers interacting with the laity, the congregation of the people of Europe, and bringing them more in line into the thought of of the uh, the Catholic Church, in a sense. Um, they're distinguished by their black attire and really were known for their involvement in teaching and work, working in university systems as well as preaching and giving the right to preach anywhere and everywhere. Uh, their most famous influ influential figure is, is Thomas Aquinas. That's their most famous uh, theologian. Uh, they were known for also uh, educating women. Uh, there was Dominican nuns. They had a ex very intense rivalry with the Franciscans, primarily on two different things. One is theological differences. For example, the Immaculate Conception, uh, Franciscans supported it. Dominicans did not. There was also uh, the Dominicans, like I said, staffed the Inquisition. And so some, you know, many people in Europe just trusted um, uh, the Dominicans for that exact reason, uh, for that negative mark that they have in working for the Inquisitions and rooting out heresy. Uh, but like I said, the preaching, these preaching orders worked as kind of like the forward guard in helping to create this unified Christendom uh, across Western Europe and creating this unified religious landscape. There are other mendicant orders uh, that also began to appear, not as, not as numerous as the Franciscan Dominicans. You have the Carmelites. They're in a sense actually a little older. They were founded uh, in in, uh, in around Mount Carmel, 1154, they had to uh, flee with the fall of Acre and Jerusalem and such to follow those crusader states. 
They were kind of reconstituted into a mendicant order in 1247, and they're known for wearing a white cloak. Um, so, you know, on the picture on the left, they have them in brown, but they wear a white cloak over it to identify themselves as Carmelites. And then you have the Augustinians, who were originally hermits that transformed into a mendicant order. Uh, they followed Augustine's rule. Augustine developed his own rule for monastic order as well early on in the early uh, in the in the fourth, fifth century. So um, those individuals chose to follow the Augustinian order. And we know this uh, becomes famous in a sense because Martin Luther goes into an Augustinian order as well and comes out and, and plays now play an important role in shaping uh, his theological thought. Now, the Mendicant Friars, uh, their mission was much different than the early monastic movements we saw because, uh, and this makes sense because when the uh, the church, in a sense, went through that uh, transformative change with the emperor, uh, Constantine becoming a Christian and elevating the church and allowing the church uh, pretty much the freedom of worship, um, we saw individuals... Uh, Oppose the corruption they saw began to appear in the church and turn away from the world and live outside the world, live separate from society. Now, with this transformative change happening again, with this economic change and the rise of the papacy, we see these monastic orders instead of seeking to escape from the world to go out into the world and and convert society over to Christianity as well. So instead of withdrawing from society at all, going back into it, and the goal was to always preach and win disciples in Europe and extend outside of Europe into other lands in Asia and Africa. Um, they primarily begged for food. Uh, they were not bound to any specific monastery, so they were, in a sense, traveling friars. They, um, they, they Depending on your sources and who you look at, um, there's always some individuals who look negatively on the friars, too. You know, you read the Canterbury's Tale, uh, uh, Jeffrey Chaucer uh, kind of attacks the, the friars. He has a character, the friar, who... Uh, offers prayer for dead for some money uh, or for some gifts. So in a sense, friars may have you abused their position as well of gaining wealth and gifts and food and money uh, to offer prayers and to offer services uh, to the local community. So there was um, some negative notoriety. Uh, and especially as they were exempt from the local bishop's authority, the local bishop couldn't do anything to really control these friars. So they answered to their order and the order answered to the papacy. There were other um, uh, groups and orders as well and other communities. The, the Begins and the Beghards are unique in that they're a spiritual community, um, but it was for lay people. Uh, they, they wanted to devote themselves in a sense to a very a strict spiritual lifestyle. Um, you know, and it's a very group, very popular, a very popular movement um, in a sense that we'll see that kind of grows out of this is uh, Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. They're on from uh, kind of like a descendant from these movements. Um, the begins were a female only sisterhood and it spread primarily in Netherlands uh, in those early weaving communities uh, that, you know, type the weaving the uh, from the wool coming from England, the trade, the wool trade happening from England into Netherlands. And so they opposed the wealth and prominence they saw in towns and cities around Europe and wanted to live that simple spiritual lifestyle and caring for the sick uh, helping the poor, focusing on reading uh, scripture in uh, living a, like the apostles from the book of Acts. And the Beghards were the male counterparts uh, to the begins and their female only sisterhoods. Now, um, 
the group was suspected of heresy uh, by the church because they didn't tie themselves to any authority. Once again, if you weren't, if you didn't have, if you, even if you weren't promoting any anti-clerical attitudes, if you weren't under clerical authority, you could be suspected of heresy. And so many claims were made against them. Uh, Pope Clement V condemned them. Uh, and then that was reversed by Pope John the 22nd. And so ultimately, long story short, that these groups, the Biggins and the Beghards, had to join monastic orders. And many dissenting, actually, like the Waldesians, the Cathars, and others, kind of, in a sense, escaped into these groups. And so there was a fear that they had these other heretical groups coming in and spreading heretical ideas. Um, and so these, these groups joined monastic orders uh, for protection by the 1400s. And so to escape persecution... Uh, from the church. There was also a growth and continuation of the missionary movement early, you know, like we talked about during the Gregorian reforms uh, and the Carlogenian period, monasteries and monks played a role as a, as the forward movement of expanding Christianity to Germanic lands in central and Eastern Europe. Now beyond Europe into Asia and Africa, there is now still a focus of, of spreading the gospel um, as well. For the Franciscans and Dominicans play an important role in that regard. Uh, you had Dominican Raymond of Pinafort uh, sharing the gospel, evangelizing Muslims in Spain during the Reconquista. Uh, you had Dominic William of Tripoli. He actually convinced the Pope to uh, to to not declare a crusade, and instead shifting focus on trying to convert Muslims peacefully. Uh, then you had the Franciscan Conrad of Scoli go to Libya, and supposedly baptized 6,000 Libyans uh, into the church as well. So there were efforts being made to help convert uh, Muslims in Africa and Spain. Uh, Then you also, in Asia, um, the Pope sent uh, John of Plano Plano Carpini to the court of the Mongol Khan in uh, Karakoram, Mongolia, or Ulaanbaatar, my apologies, Ulaanbaatar. Um, It was Karakoram. Uh, but anyway, when, uh, but uh, what was interesting was when he received when he received by the great Gon uh, Guyuk, uh, Guyuk uh, listened to John of Plano Carpini, said thank you, but no thanks. I don't want to become a Christian. Uh, but what I want you to do is send a letter back demanding that every Catholic ruler, the Pope, France, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, all of them must now submit to me as the universal ruler of the world. <laughs> Uh, he did allow John, the, the Mongols, like I said, were tolerant of all faiths in the sense in that they allowed different religions to exist within their empire. They really didn't care uh, to promote one over the other, um, uh, but they would allow them to exist as long as you submitted to their authority and their rule. Now, there was, like I said, because of the Mongol Empire, uh, in, the, the re, uh, in the sense, the continuation of the Silk Road, merchants traveling back and forth. Uh, Marco Polo, the famous story right there. Um, so there is a growth in that commerce, but along those roads, along the Silk Road and along those trade routes, we see uh, the, the goal of expanding uh, Christianity and sharing the gospel and, and in a sense a missions movement by the Western Catholic tradition. We looked at it a little bit in the Eastern Orthodox as well with Russia. Um, Kublai Khan re- sent a request uh, for 100 Christian scholars uh, in twelve in in, um, in twelve sixty nine, um, and so the Pope only sent uh, one uh, John of Monte Corvino, 
um, who arrived, unfortunately, after Kublai Khan's death. And when his son, his successor, was on the throne, uh, permitted uh, John to continue to preach and set up uh, uh, and set up an order, in a sense, in the East. And so the Pope placed upon John of Monte Corvino as the Catholic Archbishop of Peking or modern-day Beijing in 1294. And it would exist. It won't thrive necessarily. It does grow in some sense. It has difficulty growing in China. Uh, but ultimately, because the Mongols are not Chinese and they're opposed by the local Chinese people, their, their hold on China is, is tenable at best. And they're uh, the Chinese people go into uh, an uprising and form their own dynasty, the Ming dynasty, and throw out the Mongols. And so there's a fear of any foreigners by the Chinese. Um, so they kick out the Mongols and they begin to kick out all Westerners as well. And so the church goes into collapse and is completely persecuted out of existence in China for the next couple hundred years until uh, until the uh, in the end of the age of exploration. So what besides the 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 closing of the the missionary, what causes the close of the missionary movement as well, and kind of wraps up into our right when we get to the final phases of the medieval period, is the Black Death. Um, it supposedly occurred uh, in one of the Mongols' campaigns in the in the Crimea. Mongols were known not to enjoy lengthy sieges, and so any by any means necessary to end a siege. And so they would use dead bodies to uh, spread disease into a city, forcing them to surrender faster. And so one of these uh, diseases on in the Crimea, uh, in one of the port cities, uh, was the bubonic plague, which, got, which uh, infected the fleas, which infected the rats. Rats go on ships, and these boats were traveling all around the Mediterranean. And so ultimately, the bubonic plague, as these rats came ashore and the fleas jumped from fleas to humans, uh, the 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 virus spread among the population, and so the death was anywhere from a third to a half of the population. Uh, so, for example, we do have records. So, England when England was conquered by William the Conqueror at the end of uh, like 1000 AD, um, he recorded the population about one million. Uh, by about when it was 1347, the population in England was roughly about third three and a half 3.7 million people by the 1400 there was only two million people left so a million and a million and a half people died within a, a short span of time and so there was massive death toll across europe uh, no one's really exactly sure so that's why historians kind of give estimates of 75 to 200 million people total um and this this will also have impactful ramifications as we'll see in our on a final lecture in the catholic church in crisis uh, because this impacts the church as well, its religious thoughts, as well as economic trans continuing that social instability um, that happens with economic transformation. The mo missionary movement goes kind of into a decline and remains stagnant until after the Reformation. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us for our lecture today on uh, looking at the continuation of the history of the church through the Middle Ages.